morning, the message version of Matthew chapter 6. So don't try looking it up in your Bibles. I think that it's going to come up on the screen for us. This is Eugene's amazing translation of the Bible. And Tim will be reading this section of the Sermon on the Mount to us today. It's entitled, A Life of God Worship. Don't hoard treasure down here, where it gets eaten by moths and corroded by rust, or worse, stolen by burglars. Stockpile treasure in heaven, where it's safe from moth and rust and burglars. It's obvious, isn't it? The place where your treasure is, is the place you will most want to be and end up being. Your eyes are windows into your body. If you open your eyes wide in wonder and belief, your body fills up with light. If you live squinty-eyed in greed and distrust, your body is a dank cellar. If you pull the blinds on your windows, what a dark life you will have. You can't worship two gods at once. Loving one god, you'll end up hating the other. Adoration of one feeds contempt for the other. You can't worship God and money. If you decide for God living a life of God worship, it follows that you don't fuss about what's on the table at mealtimes or whether the clothes in your closet are in fashion. There is far more to your life than the food you put in your stomach more to your outer appearance than the clothes you hang on your body. Look at the birds, free and unfettered, not tied down to a job description, but careless in the care of God. And you can count far more to him, sorry, you count far more to him than birds. Has anyone by fussing in front of a mirror ever got taller by so much as an inch? All this time and money wasted on fashion, do you think it makes that much of a difference? Instead of looking at the fashions, walk out into the fields and look at the wild flowers. They never primp or shop, but, the, but have you ever seen color and design quite like it? The 10 best dressed men and women in the country look shabby alongside them. If God gives such attention to the appearance of wild flowers, most of which are never ever seen. Don't you think he'll attend to you, take pride in you, do what's best for you? What I'm trying to do here is to get you to relax, to not be so preoccupied with getting, so you can respond to God's giving. People who don't know God and the way he works fuss over these things, but you know both God and how he works. Steep your life in God reality, God initiative, God provisions. Don't worry about missing out. You'll find all your everyday human concerns will be met. Amen. Give your entire attention to what God is doing right now. And don't get worked up about what may or may not happen tomorrow. God will help you deal with whatever hard things come up when the time comes. And the people said, Amen. Amen. 
Amen. Well, thank you, Tim. Isn't it great to hear a different version? I'm just going to gather my stuff here. Maybe a familiar passage, but unfamiliarly contemporary packaging, if you like. Slightly tangled up in cables at the moment. So as I mentioned, we are in the middle of a sort of mini-series looking at generosity today and the call on our life to be generous people, to recognize that God is a generous God. As we um, just approach this passage today, shall we just pray together that the Lord would work in our hearts what he has intended for us to do. Father, we thank you again so much for the gift to this, uh, the McAndrew family of, of children, Lord, of Heidi and of Charlie. Lord, thank you for the gift that they are too, to us as a community. Lord, and that in them we see your generous provision to us, your provision of life, a miracle, Lord, of life. that life that you've given to each one of us to enjoy and to share with you and one another. Lord, as we come to your word today, your life-giving word, would you release in us real life, free life, that we might be free of anxiety and worry free to love, free to explore passion, free to give. Lord, speak to our hearts by your Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't hoard up treasures down here then, where it gets eaten up by moths corroded by rust, or worse, stolen by beggars. I've asked Lisa to come and share a little family story with us um, about moths, rust, and thieves for us today. I'll just go and get you the microphone. This is my beautiful wife, Lisa. Morning, everyone. Um, this passage is, is, is yeah. this passage is really, really significant for me. Um, as when Will was accepted for ordination, one of the things that I was really worried about was how we were going to survive financially when we were giving up two full-time salaries, um, moving to Cambridge, and going to be living on a student grant, which was less than if we were living on benefits. We went to Ridley Hall for the open day in the uh, June, I think it was, and um, a lady who I've never met before 
um, in one of the meetings, turned around to me and said that she had been given, she'd received a verse earlier in the week and that she thought it was for me. Um, for those of you that were here and heard Joe Rice preaching about um, hearing from God, this is um, a, an example of that. Um, and so this lady uh, turned to me, and she's actually now turned out to be one of my closest friends. And, and it was Jonah 2, verse 8. And the words of that are, Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit God's love for them. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit God's love for them. Pretty punchy verse to give someone whom you've never met before. And then during that summer, before we moved to Cambridge, back in London, we were living in a flat in Lily Road, and we had an infestation of moths. Um, we called in Rentakill because they were just everywhere, and we literally had to bundle up this wool rug, which was just crawling with them, and just shove it in a bin liner, and it was just, it was really, really disgusting. Um, and then one Saturday night before Will was preaching, he, he wasn't, he was just kind of preaching. He wasn't ordained, obviously. Um, but it was a Saturday night. It was about 2 o'clock in the morning. Um, and I woke up to find a burglar in our bedroom. Um, and I'm not quite sure who got the bigger fright when I sat bolt upright and shouted at him. But um, he ran away pretty quickly. Um, and then we moved to leafy Cambridge. And we thought we were leaving the kind of craziness of, of Hammersmith life and... Um, we went down to Dorset for a few days to stay with Will's family before the term started. And on the way back, we got a phone call from the police saying that our house had been broken into and our house had been ransacked. And I remember reading this passage and thinking that I just had to trust God and give him my fears and anxieties about money. We lived on less money than I had um, when I was a student, which is quite a long time ago. Um, but during those two years at Cambridge, we had a roof over our heads and we had food on our table. We had our beautiful children there, the first two, and um, we had the most blessed years of our lives while we were living there. It really was an extraordinary time. Um, since becoming a Christian six years ago, um, I have never given so much money away, and yet I have never received so much. God really does provide. And just to give you a, a tangible example of that, um, many of you may know that um, last March my best friend died, and knowing that the Christmas was going to be her last one, I wanted to make it a very special occasion we had 25 people for, for Christmas Day, including um, her family who'd flown over from Australia and six of those who had come to stay with us in our um, house for two weeks. They'd come from Australia. And um, I was really concerned about how we were going to pay for everything that I wanted to do. As even though everyone was sort of contributing to the cost of Christmas Day, it was going to cost Will and I about £700, which, quite frankly, we didn't have. But I decided to go ahead with it all anyway. And um, I felt that it was the right thing to do to make this a really, really memorable Christmas Day. Uh, and in that December, I received a tax rebate for £700. Um, from several years ago, and I had no idea that it was due to me. 
And that's just one example. And I, I have many, but that's just one example of how God really does provide. And how in um, the last six years, I can testify that the more we give, the more we really do receive. Thank you so much, Lisa. I remember coming back uh, from that, that journey down to Dorset where we'd been told that the house had been ransacked and we came back and actually found it pretty much as we'd left it. Uh, <laughs> we left in a bit of a hurry, I think. <laughs> I suppose I wanted just to start off today to ask the question, how much is enough for us? How much is enough? We tend to think just a little bit more would be just enough for me, don't we? How about 80 million pounds? Would that be enough for you and for me? Well, that's how much money Robbie Williams, there he is, got from EMI when he signed his UK uh, record-breaking deal with EMI Records back in 2002. And that was the actual picture of Robbie Williams running out into the street to the gathered press saying, I'm rich beyond my wildest dreams. You can almost imagine him saying it. Um, but five years later on, Robbie was uh, interviewed and he recognized actually that that was, in his words, the most embarrassing thing that he had ever done. He went on to say, I'm blessed to know that money has not brought me happiness. I've had to look elsewhere for happiness. Sage words. Well, maybe 80 million is by the by. Maybe uh, let's get a bit closer to home. Let's think about ourselves. Um, how much is enough? Let's say you were on the... Uh, the average wage, this is, this is from one of my favorite websites, the Global Rich List, which is put together by CARE, the, uh, the charity. And um, if you were earning the national average salary of 21,000 pounds, I've plugged it in there at the top on the website, you would be in the top 4% of the richest people on the planet. That's if you earn the average UK wage of 21,000 pounds today. I recognize that some of us are not in that place. Let's say you're on the minimum wage. If you earn the minimum wage, which equates, I think, to around a salary of 12,000 pounds, you would still be in the top 11% of the world's richest people on the planet. Okay, so here's a guess. I wonder if any of you are good at uh, uh, mathematics. What salary would you need to earn to be in the top 1% of the world's salaries? What do you think? Anybody guess a salary to be in the top 1%? 50,000? 40. I have 40 from the man at the front. 35? 35. We're going down. Anybody lower than 35? <laughs> Sorry? 
34. <laughs> I see where you're going with that. In fact, a salary of 26,000 pounds would put you in the top 1% of the world's salaries. Now, the reason why I put those three pictures up there was that what we tend to do, and what we're encouraged to do, I believe, uh, by uh, the marketing, forgive me, those who work in the marketing industry, that is, that is projected at us, what we're encouraged to do is compare ourselves with those around us, isn't it? To say, well, if I just had the car that they were driving, or the kitchen that I sat in at my friend's house last week, or this particular holiday, then maybe I would be a happier, more fulfilled person. And I can, I'm encouraged to compare myself with those around me. But what this picture shows us, that if there was a line of people from the poorest over here to the richest over there, all the people in this room, we would just be gathered up over here. Be huddled up together like this. And if I got a pay rise, I'd just move that much. If I got a bonus, move a little bit down. If I decided, okay, I'm going to have a career change, I'm going to go part-time, I'm going to halve my salary, I take a little step over here and I can see these people again. We're all just huddled up in this incredibly wealthy end of the spectrum of the global salary level. We are wealthy on a global basis. Let's not forget that. But is it good for us to be so wealthy? That is the question. Well, not necessarily, says the author, social commentator Oliver James. I don't know if you've, any of you have read his book, Affluenza. Here it is. You can see that it's largely untouched, but I have actually been through some of it. He makes, very in, he makes a very interesting case. He's, he's quite political, actually, and has different, maybe different political views to me. But I think the case that he makes is a very strong one. What he says that if you do the, if you do the sociological study globally, the countries that have this acquisitive, consumerist ideology that I need to get more are the ones that also tend to have the, the highest degree of mental illness, depression, anxiety, uh, drug abuse, uh, all these kind of addictions. And he calls it something, he calls it by the name affluenza. And at the beginning of his book, he asks us the question, are you infected by the affluenza virus. And he describes what that means. The affluenza virus is a set of values which increase our vulnerability to emotional distress. It entails placing a high value on acquiring money and possessions, looking good in the eyes of others, and wanting to be famous. Just as having the HIV virus places you at risk of developing the physical disease of AIDS, infection with the affluenza virus increases your susceptibility to the commonest emotional distresses, depression, anxiety, substance abuse, and personality disorder. 
and it gives you a little questionnaire to fill in to see whether you are infected by the virus yourself. Is it good for us to be constantly striving, to be focusing on getting, to use Eugene Peterson's snappy little phrase there, to focus on getting stuff, to getting more stuff? How much is enough for us? Well, perhaps the words of Paul to the Philippians will be worth reading today. He writes at the end of his letter, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. The secret of, content, of being content. A secret called contentment. Be that when you have much or when you have little. Have we learned that secret? And so I've entitled our um, sermon today, The Grace of Giving. This is a phrase that Paul uses in uh, uh, his second letter to the Corinthians, verse 8. He talks about the grace of giving. You see, all giving, I would suggest, is a response in us to God's grace. God's grace, which we understand best when we look at Jesus Christ himself. Paul writes in that same chapter, 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor so that through his poverty, you might become rich. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty, you might become rich. Do you think Paul is suggesting there that God wants us all to be wealthy in this world? No, well, I think that the riches that he's referring to there are the riches of God's kingdom. This is where Jesus is at his most wealthy, is at the Father's side, a place where he invites us to, a place where we've invited uh, Heidi and Charlie today to join us on this journey towards the Father's side, where we enjoy the riches of the Father's household. I wonder if you remember the, um, the scene at the end of the parable of the prodigal son, or the, some, what some people call the, the two sons, the parable of the two sons. If you remember, the, the prodigal son went off to live a life of sex and drugs and rock and roll, and he comes back to the father, and the father, to the surprise of the other brother, throws a big party for him and welcomes him back in. And the older brother says, Why is it that you're throwing this party and you've killed this fatted calf, our best animal, to throw this party for him? Do you remember the words of the father to his son? He said, son, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. 
I wonder if you can hear those words today. You are always with me. All that I have is yours. This is the God who owns the the cattle on a thousand hills. All that he has, he's shared with us. He's held nothing back. This is covenant love. Those of us, those preparing for marriage today, they'll be thinking about their vows. All that I have, I give you. All that I am, I share with you. This is a statement of covenant commitment. And this is the commitment God makes to us. All that I have, I give you. And he demonstrates it by sending us his own son, Jesus Christ. Do you remember those words from John's gospel? God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believed in him might not perish but have eternal life. Love means giving. God shows us love in that he gives to us of himself, but so much more. All that I have is yours. Rick Warren, who's the author of the book, The Purpose Driven Life, Purpose Driven Life, uh, says this, you can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. You can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. So our generosity then is a response to God's grace to us, that God has given us so much, everything, everything that we need. Storing up treasures in heaven for us, stockpiling treasure in heaven, is then an investment in this economy of grace. I wonder if you know where the word economy comes from. It's got Greek roots, and it's focused on the word oikos, which is the word for the household, the home. And it basically just means home management, housekeeping, if you like. How is housekeeping managed to dictate the shape of our society today? That's another whole different talk. (laughs) But this economy, this housekeeping, if you like, that we're invited to be part of, is an investment in grace. It's an investment in the outpouring of grace. We get involved in this giving and receiving, this economy of love. And it's also an antidote for us to this affluenza, this focus on acquisition. Here's the Archbishop of Canterbury, a man of exceptionally, exceptionally generous eyebrows, 
He's obviously, he's also generously equipped with an incredible brain. And I don't know if you, any of you would have been watching Newsnight a few weeks ago when he was interviewed on the 200th anniversary of the, the writings of Charles Dickens that was being celebrated this year. And Rowan Williams, in that interview, criticized a culture where people, in his words, are becoming fist-clenching, anxious, not generous. Fist-clenching and anxious, not generous. And when asked what he thought was Dickens' main message, he said that he believed the central message of Dickens was that people must let go of the anxiety that comes from the acquisition of wealth. Rather, he said, you have to grow through generosity. You grow through generosity. That is, I think, the Dickens lesson that I would want to see etched in granite across the life of this country, says the Archbishop. So we met with a, a, a couple of choices there. The acquisition and anxiety that goes along with that. Or a growth through generosity. And I don't believe this is really a, a, a sliding scale that you, you plot your chart your, yourself uh, on, a, on a sort of line of progr progression between the two. I think they're really uh, two sides to the same coin, if you like, of our economic outlook. We have to choose between the two. Will we choose to be generous? Or will we choose to be that fist-clenching, anxious, acquisitive person? John, our, our treasurer, emailed me yesterday and said, for him, it, it, it's like the difference between the, the Red Sea and the Dead Sea in Israel. Some of you will have been to Israel before. I haven't had that privilege. The Red Sea and the Dead Sea are basically in a pretty similar place. They're pretty similar sizes. They're pretty similar bodies of water. The only difference between the two is that the Red Sea has an outflow and the Dead Sea doesn't. The Dead Sea just hoards all the water that comes into it and has become dead. Nothing lives in the Dead Sea. The Red Sea has a healthy inflow and outflow and is a thriving life-giving place, great for scuba diving, apparently. Acquisition or generosity? These are our choices. So why is it, do you think, that Jesus spoke more about money than he did about prayer? Is that surprising to you? Jesus talked more about money than he did about prayer. Well, it's because it's the, at the heart of our human problem. We use money as a means to try to secure ourselves, to make ourselves independent, to build a, a financial wall of security around us, a place where we don't no longer need God and we no longer need anyone else. But the only problem is that it doesn't work. 
It's not a safe place. It's not good for us. It makes us sick. It just leads to stress and anxiety because it's not the way we were created to live. We were created to live interdependent lives, lives in relationship with a creator who is the great giver, lives in relationship with one another on whom we need to be, uh, in, with whom we need to be in relationship. So from the earliest times, God's people have practiced giving. They would give, out, give of the first fruits of their harvest. Even today in church, we celebrate a harvest festival, which feels a bit weird in SW6, <laughs> separated from the rural community as we are. But we'd, the, the people would come and at the beginning of the harvest, they'd bring the first fruits. They'd bring the first load of the harvest. They didn't know what they were going to gather in. But they just recognized that God had provided, so they needed to respond in some way. They would bring thank offerings. They would practice this, uh, this discipline called tithing. The word tithe just means a tenth. And so from the earliest times, people would say, a tenth of everything I give, I, I get. I'm going to give it to God. That's where the word tithe came from. And it's a good start for us to think, okay, how much do I earn? Could I think about giving away a tenth of that to God? It's a good discipline for us to think about what we have and to start off to have the intention to give what's right, not what's left. To give what's right, not what's left. So the call on us isn't to get our calculators out and work out exactly what a tenth is and is this before tax or after tax? Uh, Are there any loopholes? Can I be some kind of spiritual Jimmy Carr and uh, invest my money offshore uh, so I don't have to give it to God? No, I don't think that. Sorry, Jimmy Carr. Um, uh, I think he's he's said his apologies, so um, we should forgive him. Um, but it's a great, he's a great illustration to us of a tendency that we can allow to creep in if we don't give attention to our finances, that acquisitive temptation. It's our heart that is at stake here. We can discover new freedom and joy in our lives if we can learn to become generous people. And we start doing that by disciplining ourselves. So my my call to us all is to be a generous people. To give freely. To invest in the economy of grace. To receive much from our God who wants to say to us, all that I have is yours. I give it all to you. And that as we respond, we give back to God. We choose to give regularly. Perhaps we're going to go home, look at our finances, give a lump sum away to catch up and then set up a standing order to whoever. Who do you give to? On one level, 
it doesn't really matter. On one level, it's more important for your well-being just to give it away. It doesn't really matter who you give to. But it's great fun to think about who you might be able to give to. It's an amazing opportunity to bless somebody else, an organization, perhaps. And for those of us who are members here at St. D's, this is where the rubber hits the road. We choose to give to the local church. Partly from a practical reason, as Sarah um, alluded to, our finances this year are not quite as good as they were this time last year. We're running a few thousand pounds short of our budgeted requirement each month. But also because we believe that God is at work in the local church. By investing in the local church, we reach out to our community and we show our community how much God loves them by laying on mumbies on a Tuesday morning, by laying on the fair on the green each year. In so many ways, we demonstrate God's love to our community. And this is why we choose to invest in the local church. So just to close, just two, um, two factoids for you about giving to St. D's. This is more on a practical level if you're considering giving to St. D's, which I'd really, um, I'd really recommend that you did. Here's our giving over the last few years here at St. D's, and you can see a very healthy upward trend. In fact, over the last five to six years, our giving has doubled here in the church. Our budgeted uh, giving over the last years has been around 180, 190,000 pounds. Um, but as I mentioned, uh, this year we're falling a bit short of that, um, and that's largely because of our, our large turnover here in Fulham. Uh, our church is, not, is uh, very similar to the rest of the, the, the borough in that we have about a 20% turnover of people a year. And so it falls to us to remind everybody the need to, to support our work every year. And this is how we spend the money. Uh, that's our monthly, you probably can't read the figures, but this is our monthly uh, budget for some Ds. The biggest section, that section on the right, is what we call the common fund, which pays for uh, Tim, the vicar, his house, uh, me as a curate, my training when I went off for training, it also helps us to support areas of the borough, let's say up in White City, who really can't afford to pay a vicar. And so we support churches like that, where um, otherwise they wouldn't have a vicar in their church. So that's the common fund, far and away the biggest um, um, place where our giving goes to. Um, down in the bottom left-hand corner, our next biggest chunk is on staff. We have five paid members of staff, and we get an absolute bargain uh, for their services here at church. They invest long hours and great energy into our shared life and ministry. And uh, the other costs there are largely around the building and maintaining our infrastructure. So do give to St. D's as one of your uh, ways of giving. There are some standing order forms at the back and people in the vestry to help you fill them out if you need help with them. Um, after the service. But as I said earlier, 
that the issue, uh, there is an issue for us about our finances, but the main issue for us that I wanted to get across today was that we are called to join in God's generous way of life, a life about giving and grace. Will the Lord bless us and keep us. Amen.